Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. No, it's not Charlie Sykes. It's Mona Charon sitting in for the great Charlie Sykes, who is on vacation. We are very fortunate to have as our guest this morning, A.B. Stoddard, who is one of the smartest analysts of politics writing in America today. A.B., great to have you. It's wonderful to be with you, Mona. In honor of Charlie's tradition here at the Bulwark Podcast, I think before we get into the fantastic articles that you've written recently, we do have to touch base with the crazy that's out there. And there was something called America Fest that uh, was held over the last few days out in Arizona. And uh, this was the Turning Point USA group that was founded by a kid who got some big donor behind to give him lots of money. And this Trump acolyte child has got himself at the head of this organization called Turning Point USA. They had a big meeting that they called the America Fest. And guess who the big star was, the person that they were lionizing as a hero for our time, it was Kyle Rittenhouse. Okay. So, and as if that weren't bad enough, and, you know, again, you have to say Kyle Rittenhouse was a confused and misled 17-year-old who had no business being out with a gun at a riot, but the the point is not about him. The point is what is being done with him by the right at this point, that they are making him into a hero. He killed two people. It, whether you think he should have been criminally responsible for that under very uh, murky circumstances in which, you know, I, personally, I think that the jury's verdict was probably right, that he didn't murder them. He was firing in self-defense. But boy, what a horrible situation. And nobody, any civilized person should be saying, what a tragedy. Two lives have been lost. This should never have happened if the kid had not been out there hauling a long gun around in a riot. Anyway, that's not where the right is, is it, A.B.? I mean, they are all about saying, yeah, he's great. He is a model for other young men to follow. That's exactly right. He had a mom who drove him there. He owned these assault weapons. He is a nice white boy with a sweet smile and a baby face. And he's a vigilante. I mean, essentially right. what the right is trying to message these days is that if you think the way we do, you have to take matters into your own hands. So instead of, as you point out, saying that the police on the scene at this riot should have said, young man, it's time for you to go home. I yeah. don't know what relative drove you here and why you own that weapon, but it's really a terrible situation here. It's very volatile and it's time for you to leave. They didn't do that. And as you know, you know, many of these laws are weak. The definition of self-defense is broad. He was allowed to have that weapon carried into Wisconsin, whatever. It's fine. But the reception of the verdict and the message going forward should be that this is dangerous. It's irresponsible. And we just can't have kids, misguided children doing what they want, um, let alone misguided adults. And it's all of a piece with the abortion ban in Texas. Um, which empowers citizens to take matters into their own hands as well, to try to track down people who have aided a woman getting an abortion um, and looking for you know, prize money, essentially. I mean, this is really an incredible, 
incredible escalation in the message about not only that the, you know, a few years ago, it was still the other side's wrong and they're crazy. Then it was the other side's dangerous. Now it's that we really, we have to take any measure that we choose to stop them. And that's the promotion of violent rhetoric, the, the actual promotion of violence and this vigilante messaging to citizens that they have the right not only to protest violently, but to just litigate matters um, as they see fit. And it's and it's just it's just incredible how quick it's taken off. It's empowered by so many people up and down the ballot, including members of it's Congress. Never, uh, I would I would also point out most potently it is never. Um, criticized by the leadership of the party. So that's how it rises. Right. And that's that's what's so frightening is that uh, no one's going to stand in the way to stop it, even if they think it's wrong. That's absolutely right. And among the people who are encouraging this are sitting members of the House of Representatives. You know, Madison Cawthorn, uh, Lauren Bobbert, you know, they're, they are um, saying they'd love to hire the guy. I mean, this is so far beyond what civilized people do in a well-functioning society. As you say, it is truly, truly frightening. All right. But as if that weren't bad enough, there was there was another speech delivered at this America Fest. And the fact that they tried to um, hijack America and American and the flag and all of that for their perverted ends is another- Oh, no, no. They're always the real Americans. We're not. Yeah, exactly. So here was a speech by Jesse Waters. He's a Fox host, I guess. And he talked about Fauci. And let's listen to what he recommended to this mostly college-age audience about how they should treat the leading public health authority in America today. Now you're going for the kill shot. The kill shot with an ambush, deadly. Because he doesn't see it coming. This is when you say... Dr. Fauci, you funded risky research at a sloppy Chinese lab, the same lab that sprung this pandemic on the world. You know why people don't trust you, don't you? Boom! He is dead. He is dead. He's done. Now, how you do that? 30 seconds. That's all you need. 30 seconds. Now, you get that footage to us, you get it to Fox, you get it to Human Events, you get it to Breitbart, you get it to Daily Caller, you get it to the Turning Point Pipeline. Imagine Tucker Carlson teases out of the A block, coming up. Brave college student confronts Lord Fauci at dinner. Exclusive footage right back. Get us that. That's what we want. Brave. That changes the whole conversation of the country. (laughs) I've authorized it. Just make sure it's legal. Yeah. Um, Now, he was not actually saying that they should take AK-47s and aim kill shots at Fauci. But it's certainly that he was saying they should they should confront him and videotape it, and that's the so-called kill shot. But to use that language and its ambiguity, knowing full well that a lot of people in that audience are would-be Kyle Rittenhouses, it is 
just staggering, A.B., that this is what the right wing entertains itself with now. I I actually think there's that it's not ambiguous. He uses done, dead, 30 seconds, kill shot. It's ambush. He doesn't see it coming. It's actually calling for the assassination of Dr. Fauci. He just closes it at the end so he doesn't lose his job at Fox by saying, make sure it's legal. Yeah. And trying to pretend that you might threaten him in a confrontation and get footage and send that to Fox. But really, most of what he's saying is he he should be assassinated. That's what I want. And it's it's so incredibly chilling because that's it's it's not to me, it's not ambiguous and he will not be punished by Fox. And it, it again, this is not holding up the McCloskeys of St. Louis on their property with their guns in front of protesters protecting their own house. You can argue with what they did, but this is buy a gun, leave your home, hunt a human being down, a a public official, and you will be glamorized and this is romanticized and you'll be rewarded for you know, some kind of violent act with a weapon. That, that's what this is. This is not, we we ought to rally around people who protect their homes, who come out in their polo shirts or their Brooks Brothers shirts from their mansion and point guns at Black Lives Matter protesters. That's not what we're talking about here. This is 200 times more dangerous. This is, this is not glorifying people using their Second Amendment rights to defend their property. This is, uh, you know, uh, this is this is a call to arms uh, and pointing out specific people that need to be ambushed with a kill shot and then quote they're dead couldn't be more clear have we heard one peep out of Mitch McConnell denouncing this or Kevin McCarthy or any of the so-called leaders of the Republican Party who are supposed to be the gatekeepers and uh, who are supposed to be the sane ones. We keep hearing that there is a sane caucus in uh, the Senate. Um, where where are they? But that's what's so interesting, Mona, is that, that sometimes there, you could tell during the Trump years, you'd have someone kind of take the heat and be sort of the wingman pusher backer no John Cornyn, no John Thune, no John Barrasso, no Mitch McConnell, no Rob Portman who's retiring, no um, Richard Burr who's retiring, no Roy Blunt who's retiring, no Steve Scalise, no Kevin McCarthy, no Elise Stefanik, no Tom Emmers running the campaign committee that's trying to hold on to swing seats represented by moderate Republicans who voted for impeachment that Trump's trying to take down. There's no one stepping up. You know, you can you can understand why the top guys don't want to be in the in the crosshairs and they're hiding somewhere, but they don't even send out some kind of lieutenant at a lower rung to, to go on TV and get that question and say this is really out of control. Nobody. Yeah. Well, this brings us to the fantastic piece that you wrote for the bulwark. And you said that the attempted coup in 2021 really ought to be the Democrats' leading message. And you said, for most of 2021, the Democratic Party in Washington has earnestly tended to deck chair displays as the ship of democracy sinks. So, A.B., a lot of people would read your piece, a lot of Democrats, and they would say, 
Look, it does no good to bang on about Trump. Look what happened in the state of Virginia. You want people to go out and denounce Trump and they'll they'll just they'll the voters don't care and it'll just distract from the kitchen table issues that voters really care about. And why are you giving us this advice? Exactly. These sentiments have driven them into a polling plummet and at the end of their first year in power of the Senate, House, and White House, and at the peak of wipeout losses next year in the midterm elections. And I'm not asking them to stop talking about the economy and jobs and the pandemic. I actually think that everything that they're facing in terms of these headwinds on all these issues really leads back to the pandemic, that that no matter how many green shoots they find in the economy and positive indicators um, are now, you know, are, are that are real. Um, you, you talk about lowest unemployment in more than 50 years, you know, all this other stuff. The, this kind of thing will not penetrate until people feel that the pandemic is under control because they can't see any hope in the economy. They just see more pandemic, more pandemic, and, and then less growth, less growth, and, and more inflation. So while they're fighting that, it's not that they stop talking about that, but knowing that that is out of their control for the time being and that the greatest threat we face is actually the end of the constitutional order in just a few years, it behooves them to talk about the findings of the January 6th committee. So that doesn't mean necessarily that you talk about the riot, that you talk about the fact that the Republicans don't support the Capitol Police uh, when there's a coup underway and Donald Trump and Donald Trump. No, you talk about how f- what we are learning about how fragile our system is and how premeditated this was. And it started in November. It was in deep development throughout December. It was it involved many, many people across the government in, in, in the executive branch and in the legislative branch, that there is exposure for members of Congress seeking to undermine the, the, the process of their own chamber, of their own institution, to rob the voters of their say and to actually not decertify an election, but steal an election. And that this has ramifications for the years to come. And if this was the kind of thing that Biden spoke about on a regular basis, what we're learning from the from the one six committee, um, if the if the leaders went on TV now and then and talked about that as they continue talking about uh, the struggles that Americans are focused on every day and less about the negotiations over the Build Back Better, which people interpret as some pie-in-the-sky intra-party fight that's a waste of their time and energy to even read about. I I do think that what you would do is you would, A, potentially give us a path to mitigating their victories next year and their hold on the power levers that allow them to nullify the 2024 election. You do that by bringing back the 2018 voters and the 2020 voters who might be Republicans or independents who really actually are concerned. And I don't think this is the woke left. I don't think this is the young activists in the party. I think this is the right edge of the Democratic coalition that actually is concerned about this stuff and um, will pay attention to what we're learning from the January 6th committee. And it needs to be highlighted and it needs to be front and center um, as a threat to the system. You don't have to talk, you don't have to use Trump's name a lot. You have to educate the public about the perilous state that we're in. You just said something that is intriguing, and I wonder if we could just drill down on that for a second. You you mentioned in passing that 
the January 6th committee may be uh, discovering that members of Congress were involved in this attempted coup. Have you been hearing that? Is that is that what the, the scuttlebutt is? We absolutely know that Jim Banks and Jim Jordan and Paul Gosar and Mo Brooks and um, a few others, Andy Biggs and Scott Perry, there's, there's a good half a dozen of them at least that were involved in different levels, either talking to Ali Alexander of the Stop the Steal movement, who was planning the rally and was um, whooping people up, you know, what part of the army of social media influencers whooping people up about false claims about the election and how January 6th was the last stand, come to Washington, protect the president, you know, blah, blah, all, all that stuff. So they're, they're in connection with, with these people, but some of them are also working with Jeffrey Clark at the Department of Justice um, in an effort to to decertify, to stall for time, to explore um, these false claims of election fraud. So we know that. Now, we don't know yet. I don't have texts to read to you, but we absolutely know, you know, that Jim Jordan was talking to Mark Meadows about this. We know the six names I mentioned, that they were involved different levels on the spectrum from top level DOJ conversations about how to help Trump all the way out to the social media landscape where they were working to rile up the nutters and bring people to Washington on January 6th with false promises. So you look at Gosar trying to sue Pence, and then it was his suit was thrown out in late December uh, because he insisted that Pence take over, that he was empowered by the Constitution to take over the entire process on January 6th, which of course he was not. This prompted Pence to have to come out um, earlier than he wanted to, in, in, in sort of further away from January 6th than he wanted to, to say, I don't believe I have that power. His allies are still upset about that. Um, and they believe that Trump might have been involved with that Gosar lawsuit, you know, knowledgeable about it and and um, eager about, about the plans that he and Sidney Powell were cooking up. So it, it, it's definitely, uh, there's enough stink in Congress to, to uh, there might be others, we don't know. But um, there are definitely uh, players um, and and sort of, you know, I don't know how loosely I can use the terms with co-conspirators in lying to people, trying to mess up the certification of electors in these different states, trying to promote fraud and then encouraging them to come to town on that day to protect the presidency uh, knowing full well that um, they were all going to bring their guns and that there was intelligence concern about January 6th, as we all discussed at the time. We did. I mean, I can remember at the time when they were, you know, putting out this all points bulletin call for, you know, patriots to come to the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, I was tweeting for what that's worth, whatever, but I was saying, you know, what the hell for? What are they coming here for? You know, there's absolutely no legitimate reason to call a mob to the Capitol. Um, I, I, of course, didn't know, uh, didn't foresee exactly what was going to happen, but I could see that it was no good reason to have them here. The other thing is, and it's such a witch's brew, A.B., I mean, honestly, yeah. the fact that these nutters, as you put it, and and sinister, dis lying, you know, amateurs are, are leaders of our country is just one of those things that gives you a little bit of vertigo. But that is where it is. I mean, Sidney Powell, who is almost certifiably... Uh, 
addled, you know, was in the White House, in the Oval Office, giving advice to the president. Uh, you know, General Flynn was recommending martial law and that we should, uh, de- you know, confiscate all the voting machines in the country. I mean, you know, it's just beyond belief. Okay, but the other the other couple things are that um, that Donald Trump was calling people on the Hill while the riot was in progress, right? We know this. I mean, Jim Jordan did not deny that he spoke to Trump that day. And we know that he reached Mike Lee, attempting to reach Tuberville. And Lee has already acknowledged, was reported in early January, that, that he did get this phone call from Trump and that Trump was attempting to delay the vote to certify the election while the riot was going on. So that is damning, is it not? I mean, no, I, I, I still cannot believe now Mike Lee got a voicemail also from Giuliani. So he heard from both of them asking mm-hmm. for the that's same right, thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think he got a voicemail from Giuliani, but he called, he got the call from Trump and Tuberville had left the chamber or something. Yeah. Cause um, they were running for their lives. Right. <laughs> and then, and then Rudy Giuliani was hoping that night they could still, um, that Mike Lee could, could help the the band of decertifiers who, after all of the mayhem and death, still went on to decertify to vote to decertify on the House side. So it, it is it is a really it's amazing to me that Mike Lee um, and he was he was asked you know that he was asked to look into things in December. He he looked he admits he 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 researched it and then told them um, I don't see the fraud that you think you see. Uh, it, it, this is the point is that this was if you. There is no evidence that Justice Alito was going to do what Sidney Powell was asking him to do, but she wanted to delay the certification on January 6th because she thought that Alito, who has jurisdiction over Texas, was going to weigh in on her effort to do something. I mean, this is... It's crazy town. It's so crazy yeah. that it's hard for us to talk about it without laughing, but people of former integrity as high up as Mike Lee on the food chain did not come to us did not say that that, that that this was going on, was complicit enough to be getting phone calls from the war room, from mad dogs like Rudy Giuliani in the heat of, of the riot. It, it's, it's, yeah. Just, yeah. it's just so surreal to me. I mean, Mike Lee is not Mo Brooks or Paul Gosar, but there's so many of them. And, and, and Lindsey Graham, and it, it's, there are just so many people that absolutely knew what they were up to. His own campaign knew within days and in, in by the end of November that these claims weren't true. They basically turned their operation into a stop the steal fundraising mechanism. It went on to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, absolutely knowing that they were stealing money from these vulnerable people that they were quote raising it from. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really hard to take in yeah. how cynical it is and how crazy it is and how dangerous it is. But it's important. That's part of the message that has to get through from the January 6th committee. It has to be messaged repeatedly and clearly that this is a government-wide conspiracy from the White House to the DOJ to the halls of Congress that we think Justice Alito was not involved in. But that's a pretty broad conspiracy to throw the legitimacy of Joe Biden's win into doubt if you're the most innocent of them all the way to the guilty who were absolutely willing to steal the election. That's it. It is a comprehensive failure of the elites. Uh, That is the elites of the Republican Party um, who had a duty, a patriotic duty, 
to put a stop to this, to say this is a, a line you cannot cross, to say the sorts of things that Lindsey Graham, frankly, and uh, was saying right after January 6th and others, and Kevin McCarthy was saying right afterwards, you know, this is it. We, we've, the, the, I'm out. This is, this is too far. But of course, they've all crawled back. And you had a piece, a recent piece about Mitch McConnell, in which you pointed out that he, you know, he puts one toe into the water where he says, oh, yes, Trump was responsible for it. But then he doesn't vote to convict. And he's always sort of playing both sides. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I find it so interesting because I, I, you know, I know people he talked to have described to me his thinking about how he would vote to acquit, but then come out and lacerate Trump with that famous statement where he, he said he was morally and practically, and then some other adverb responsible for inciting the insurrection, which was really obviously incongruous with not voting to convict him and voting right. to acquit him, but he did it because he wants to have it both ways. Um, and then, you know, he went, quiet for a few months. He didn't want to endorse Herschel Walker in Georgia, which is really ground zero for the Republican, um, you know, what's left of this. I don't call it a civil war anymore. It's sort of the Republican, you know, implosion, right? It's like, it's like they're going to risk losing Georgia because Donald Trump wants to, um, wants to destroy Brian Kemp, the sitting governor so badly that, um, and can control the, the Republican Party primary process there that he has to have his pick in Herschel Walker, who is someone that only, you know, his only viability as a candidate is that he's famous and he loves Donald Trump, but he has otherwise no business, you know, running for the Senate. And so McConnell thought that would be, and he has a troubled past and, and some controversy. So he thought that, that, that Donald Trump, that, I mean, sorry, that Herschel Walker would be a mistake. So they were early on the establishment, you know, pushing back against Herschel Walker, and and then all of a sudden he he endorses Herschel Walker. So you know he's going to on the one hand endorse and protect incumbent Senator Lisa Murkowski, which who is you know obviously an object of Trump's wrath, who Trump is trying to defeat. But then on the other hand, he's going to you know go with Trump's pick in uh, in. Uh, in Georgia. And he um, certainly doesn't want Ted Budd, uh, Trump's pick in North Carolina. He wants, they want all want McCrory, but, you know, they're going to try to stay quiet. And there's just another example in Alabama. So he sort of he said on Fox, because he probably still wants to be invited on Fox, that he would support Donald Trump if Donald Trump was the nominee in 2024. Yep. And he voted against a January 6th commission, a 9-11 style bipartisan, you know, the, the sort of fulsome effort that really would have been the best resolution for this and, and mm -hmm. put out a, a, you know, a report for history, et cetera. And then, you know, he's, he's, he buckles on other areas. And then recently he's just popped out of the ground again and decided to like cheer on the January 6th committee yeah. and in the eye, which is so interesting. And the, and the, what you see is that team McConnell is making sure the media writes these stories saying, Oh, He's totally vanquished Trump in the effort to unseat him as leader. It's a joke. No one, even crazy Ron Johnson, Tuberville, no one will back an effort to dump McConnell as leader as Trump is like press releasing about now once every 10 days. Mm -hmm. And so this is supposed to make people think like, oh, this is great. Like McConnell's like liberated and found his space. Well, no, because Trump is not going to let go. You know, he's a rabid dog with a bone. He doesn't once he he's not going to like change his mind about Mitch McConnell. 
And once you encourage insurgents, like the few candidates who say, yes, we're going to vote against McConnell, and it becomes a fundraising message, you know, this emboldens people on the House side, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, to challenge McCarthy as leader, and has a whole ripple effect throughout the entire party. And I'm not rooting for them to win. What I'm saying is, and I'm not saying McCarthy's been a good leader. I'm just looking at the, you know, just breaking down the mechanics of this. Any threat to McCarthy is also a destabilizing force in the party, right? It's like you embolden Matt Gates and Marjorie Green to take on McCarthy and say he's not fit to be leader. Um, and you embolt and, and Steve Bannon's on his podcast calling McConnell a wimp and saying he's betrayed the Republican Party. If they're to rise to power again and the message at the base is McConnell and McCarthy have to go, they don't know where that ends. You know, this this ceaseless incitement of the very worst aspects of their base is the sort of thing that you would have that you see all the time in dysfunctional countries. You know, you see it in the Arab world to a large degree. And a lot of the corrupt leaders in the Arab world are constantly feeding uh, awful propaganda and incitement to their people to just keep them angry at somebody else so that they won't turn their anger about the conditions in the country toward them. It's something that Putin does very uh, skillfully. It's it's not something you associate with the United States, but it's very, you know, isn't it interesting, A.B., that we're at this moment now where the inciters have also just lost control of what they can direct the mob to think or believe. So, for example, the other day when when Trump encouraged the uh, audience to get uh, booster shots, they booed him. No, no. Yeah. So, you know, that's the, the, it's, it's not something that, you know, the monster once unleashed can't really necessarily be controlled even by the, even by the ringleader. Um, but, um, but back to McConnell for just a second, I just want to underline this. I mean, so I, it would be worth rereading that speech that he gave after he voted to acquit Trump in the second impeachment, where he just lambasted him and said that he was completely and totally responsible. He even dangled the idea that he might be legally liable for for yes. what happened that day, and uh, that it was a disgrace, and that it was you know one of the low points in American history. And he went on and on. And then a few months later, he says, "Yeah, but I would vote for him for president again." Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's just how can anybody take the man seriously? Uh, it, it is. A, all right. Now, well, the good I news is the good news is about for McConnell is that he doesn't care, right? You know, he just he he has no concern with being consistent. He wants to be majority leader, but now he wants to feel in some way that in this chapter he's technically done with Trump. I also recommend for those you know who who might look back at this the January the um, the speech after the Senate trial, um, I would recommend the speech on the morning of January sixth. Mitch McConnell had just lost the majority in mm-hmm. Georgia the night mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. Uh, with the two runoff seats uh, going to Democrats because Trump depressed the vote there. And he Correct. made a speech about the certification of electors in which he basically also said like Trump had lied to people and that, and that this is, you know, you, you can't do this. We, Congress doesn't have the power to steal an election. I mean, he didn't use those words exactly, but it was also a very interesting speech. Um, and so once in a while he fancies himself an institutionalist and, Right now, he he really is trying to have it both ways. I think he's very eager for the January 6th committee to reveal terrible things about Donald Trump and uh, Mark Meadows and uh, the members of Congress who helped them. 
Let's take a minute. I'd be curious to hear your analysis of what's been happening with the Democrats, because they are, of course, at the moment in the midst of this, I guess you could call it meltdown regarding a mansion and so on. And, um, you know, a lot of us at the Bulwark, well, we have a little bit of a, we have a little bit of a, a mixed view at the Bulwark. So JVL thinks that uh, Manchin behaved very badly, and uh, that may be right. But um, Tim Miller and I think that the um, that the Democrats have been completely unrealistic about what could be expected. Oh, and Sarah too, what could be expected from Manchin? That they're lucky to have Manchin in the Senate from West Virginia, which is which, as I said in my recent column, you know. West Virginia gave more votes to Donald Trump than Utah or Texas or Alabama. I mean, you know, it is a super red state. And uh, the fact that they have Manchin there at all means that they can't afford to alienate him. And just this morning, A.B., before we started this podcast, I was reading the paper about how the Republicans who've always kind of courted him, but now they're really, you know, kicking it up into high gear saying, hey, looks like your people don't like you. You're welcome here. I've covered a lot of party switching, and it's it, it's very possible if you listen to how frustrated Joe Manchin is and how he speaks to, at the Democrats, he calls them they. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting. He often and he also never says I'm a Democrat because before mm-hmm. he talks about their, you know, their disagreements, mm-hmm. he never tries to say I'm a Democrat because they would be in the majority if he joins them. Right. And so they're probably offering him Lord knows he could write his ticket. I have been on team math the entire time. The math is the math is the math is the math. And the idea that the Democrats, okay, woke up after this election and, oh, bummer, had lost a bunch of their frontliners in the House. Republicans had won 13 seats when they were supposed to be beaten into the ground by Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. Do you remember the days, Mona, when... When the Democrats last fall were spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars because they had between eight and 10 Senate seats in play, they were going to win red states like Montana and Kansas, South Carolina and Kentucky. They were even talking about making a pass at Texas. Yes. So if you look back at this, they they were gravely uh, disappointed. I mean, the results were gravely disappointing, no matter, you know, that that. Biden won by four, fewer than 45,000 votes in a couple of states. Uh, and instead, they tried to So, of course, his popular victory was much larger. But, but yes, again, yes. I mean... In the Electoral College. Unfortunately, in our system, a lot of votes in California and New York really don't matter. And so saying that Biden won by 81 million votes is more than anyone ever got is really great, but not when he almost elected Donald Trump to a second term by only 44,000 votes and change in a few swing states in the Electoral College. So I'll say this again in our conversation that the Democrats were handed two Senate seats in the runoff elections on January 5 in Georgia by Donald Trump, who depressed the rural vote there by saying the system was rigged. I think Biden did not expect to get those seats. And um, I think that they very much complicated his governing path after that. The Democrats had promised their voters the moon, and then they continued to act as if they had a mandate and a margin, and they have neither. And they have overpromised and underdelivered. And so you're going to have 
a disappointed base sitting out the next election and going back to their lives and not engaging in the threat to democracy, let alone um, the outcome of the Build Back Better negotiations. And, and th- you know, that that's, to me, has been the problem all along. And you have this, this um, disproportionate enthusiasm. So the people who think democracy is in danger are the Republicans, th- wrongly. I mean, they believe that democracy is in danger because the last election by their lights was stolen. And they are energized to get out and vote the next time around to redeem what they regard as uh, a great wrong. And the people uh, and the Democrats don't aren't as concerned about the threats to democracy, which was one of the points of your excellent piece. Yeah, and I think that that's the fault of the Democrats, because first of all, in the winter, when we saw this incredibly shrewd and strategic and coordinated national effort to kick into gear and pass all of the partisan legis- partisan voting restriction bills in all the right places in, in, in swing states in order to increase partisan influence over the outcomes to enable state legislatures, um, and, and they're all Republican, to basically pick and choose which you know, votes they wanted to count um, you saw Democrats just bullheadedly continue to talk about voter suppression. They won't even let us give water bottles. I and know. Wine. And it was never about vote counting. It was all right. about vote casting. And yep. so they spend months doing that and, you know, uh, boycotting, you know, the MLB and this and that. They spend months on that. And then, and then since then, now that they've swallowed, it's actually a problem of voter nullification, electoral nullification they've just sort of gone mute on it. They just, they just realized that that wasn't the problem, but again, not educating the public about, about um, what this is um, and how it, this is literally now as you know, it's legal now it's been legalized to steal the election. And so you, you and, and I, I guess Stacey Abrams will talk about this in her campaign, but that's not enough. It needs to be at the federal national level it needs to be in clear, repeated language um, over and over again. And then I just want to read this because um, when you talk about Republicans believing um, not only Trump's lies, but then all of the lieutenants that have helped him and have been lying since Bannon's podcast, which I, I'm, you know, God bless if Tim wants to spend his days watching this. I don't know that I'll sleep, so I can't like watch Bannon's podcast. I know for a month and then do a bore piece on it because it'll really send me to the hospital. I hear you. <laughs> I'm sure you saw that he has said in the past that we're taking over the elections. Then yep. he said this week, they want to talk about all day long about Omicron and January 6th. And we love it because nobody cares. We care because we care about the legitimacy of our process. We are a constitutional republic. <sighs> and guess what? We are going to take over the election apparatus. And then he encouraged, quote, American citizens to aid him in the takeover and um, and then says, you know, to, to encourage them, I understand you don't think that's democracy because the globalists have done the misdirection plays and having everyone look the other way. So he's trying to say, you felt that you weren't empowered in the past, but, you know, basically, um, come on, vigilantes, let's let's take back democracy. And there the messaging from these very powerful perches are 
yes, that we are a, a constitutional republic, Mona, and we're actually interested in and devoted in the legitimacy of our system. Yeah, they believe they are the patriots. Uh, and uh, and unless the true patriots wake up and uh, and push back, uh, we are in we are in serious serious trouble as a country. Let me just also hit one more theme because I do it relentlessly. I'm constantly beating this drum, but it's important. You mentioned the Electoral Count Act, um, and people should understand that the Electoral Count Act was passed after the awful uh, mess of an election we had in 1876. And it it is a piece of legislation that is so poorly drafted, so murky, that it gives, it's, it's pretty unclear what it demands in terms of vote counting. And one of the things that it permits is that if just one member of the House and one member of the Senate raise an objection next January 6th, you know, of an election year about the certification of any state's delegation, that is sufficient to call that into question. And then they have to go to a special committee and so on. That is nuts. And that needs to be changed. That's just one thing. There are other things in the bill that are incredibly easily abused. And the Republicans are, you know, they, they've got, they've got neon signs saying we are looking to abuse the law and steal the next election. <laughs> yes. And, and, and so the Democrats, when you talk to them, I'm sorry, but when I've talked to Democrats, they say, um, and I say, what about that? Just, just make that a standalone reform of the Electoral Count Act so that it makes it impossible to steal the election easily. And they say, well, Republicans won't vote for it. Well, fine, then make them own it if they won't vote for it and explain what the stakes are, that that if Republicans are defending that piece of legislation, they want it to be easy to steal the next election. And they say, well, yeah, we're aware of that, but it's it's part of a larger track of voter, you know, voter rights. And, you know, those those issues are all bound up together and they're not separate. And, you know, I kind of despair like they don't see the urgency of that particular reform. I agree with you. And I was despairing many, many, many months ago because I felt that Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney were not alarmed at the voting restriction bills that were being passed by the states and, and the and the and the enabling of voter nullification and therefore the prospect for more violence on January 6th of 2025 um, by either side. Mm-hmm. What I do think is a green shoot, a ray of hope, is that they are discovering through their um, investigation how uh, murky the situation is, how vulnerable we are, and um, how much the ECA needs to be reformed. I do know that Manchin is trying to talk to Republicans these days about, he says he's in conversations with them about rules changes. I do think since he rescued the party from their ill-fated For the People Act, and he wrote with Klobuchar the Freedom to Vote Act, with voter ID and, you know, it's a more moderate, realistic bill and actually addresses this danger of partisan influence in the count. I think and I hope that he is talking to them about the ECA or he would come around to at least some kind of, you know, maybe a carve out just for the ECA. Like you said, put them on the record. If we can't get 10 of you to just reform the Electoral Count Act, 
then we need to just, we need to know for the record that you're pro-coup. But right. come on, come on, Mitt Romney, stand up and be counted. Yep. And so that is my one actual glimmer of optimism is that with the revelations from the investigation into January 6th and the committee, you know, doing such a thorough job and they're, the Republicans on that committee, their concern about the Electoral Count Act, that that might, no matter what happy talk the, the Democrats continue to sing about the need for a kitchen sink, another kitchen sink, you know, of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act and the ECA reform, that that they will see the wisdom if some Republicans and Manchin can convince their colleagues to do this on the way out the door, you know, get the retiring members, someone like Bill Cassidy. I know who the same Republicans are. Mike Rounds is one. Todd Young is one. I mean, to me. yeah, they're there. There's a realistic 10. And so that that's my hope. Well, I think that that is a great note to close on because <laughs> it is Christmas week and we can't be uh, too gloomy. We have to have hope. And so, A.B. Stoddard, thank you so much for joining us on the Bulwark Podcast. I hope you have a fantastic holiday with your family and friends. And we'll be back tomorrow and do this all over again. 